Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm William Chen. And I'm Sarah Watt. And each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective, with some connection. It could be the same actor, the same director, or a similar theme. However, there have been many changes in the world and uh, all influenced by the spread of COVID-19, the virus that is shutting down cinemas and shutting down borders. And in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we are in full lockdown. So, And uh, also our cinemas, as I mentioned, are closed. And a lot of the films that we were planning to talk about have been pushed back so that they can maintain an adequate box office return uh, at a later date. So, uh, Sarah, would you like to do the honours and explain to our listeners what our plan is for this podcast? I'd love to, Jeremy. So, ladies and gentlemen, you will be aware that you have a plethora of options in the streaming world for um, entertainment over the coming weeks of your lockdown or self-isolation. We wanted to make it a little easier for you by coming up with five categories of films and then giving you our top tips on uh, our picks, really, for each of those categories. So we're going to start with giving you our top picks of films that you can watch as a family. We'll then go on to talk about classic films that you might enjoy re-watching. Then we're going to throw at you something a little new that you might have missed over the last 12 months. Then, hopefully, we're going to really throw you a curveball with something a little bit off the wall, And then we're all going to settle in with the films that we go to in difficult times, what we might call the films for our happy place. Excellent. Thank you, Sarah. So we will be talking about a range of films. None of us have uh, talked about which films we've picked before this. And uh, we're going to just see where we go. And it's it's a public service announcement is one way that that, uh, we talked about it on the chat before this. That this is our offering to you. Here's some things that you can watch on lockdown. And uh, yeah, we'll have a good old time. We'll try and keep it relatively spoiler free because, you know, we don't know the films we're going to talk about and you don't know the films we're going to talk about. But I think with all things, uh, there, there can be some implied plot points from what we talk about. So, yeah, I guess proceed with caution. So let's start with a film that is a family film that can be watched on on a streaming service. And uh, William, I'm going to pass it to you, but I just ask that if you can tell us the film and also let people know which streaming service it might be available to them on. Of course. Right, here we go. So the family film I picked uh, for my, I guess, pick of the litter, there's so many good ones to watch in a time like this. But the one that really stood out was How to Train Your Dragon in 2010. Um, you can stream it now, right now on Netflix. It's directed by Chris Sanders and Dean Dubois. And I would uh, really maybe go out on a limb and say this is DreamWorks' best film. Not just DreamWorks animation, but the the company itself. I don't think they've released anything that that surpasses this, which is it's pretty much a masterpiece. Um, and of course, you, you would have seen the sequels and the TV show and the video games and all of the, the ephemera that surrounded this franchise. But the, the very beginning, the 2010 movie, is is magnificent. It's um well, I guess the plot is is relatively simple. It's a boy and his dog, except his dog is a dragon, right? Um, so Hiccup is a young Viking that lives in a, a fantastical land, the, the the land of Burke, where the the island of Vikings gets attacked by dragons, and his dad is a dragon hunter. His, his whole village are dragon hunters, 
and they want him to you know be a man and kill dragons except he doesn't really want that not that he's a pacifist per se but because he thinks there's probably a little more than than what's going on and i think the movie is brilliant on so many different levels it's a wonderful adventure flick the animation is stunning the message is beautiful. I know I've gone on on this podcast before at length about the, the horrible messages that can be found in kids' films. And this <laughs> is just, it's really one for the ages. It's, um, I, I was trying to think about boiling it down, and it's, it's really about intellectualism and curiosity trumping, trumping kind of a, a toxic bigotry. Um, and not just bigotry, but traditional bigotry and how young people through through wanting something different and through viewing the world and through a different lens can lead the world to a better place, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful message in our time. Um, and I think the movie does great because it approaches this via the scientific method. And as a science teacher, <laughs> watching this movie every time and seeing how Hiccup the Viking starts to very cautiously befriend uh, the dragon Toothless, who is an awesome creation. Um, and he, you know, I mean, okay, fine. Kids movies love inventors, right? And every single kids movie has, oh, I want to be a inventor, but no one believes me. Da, 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 da. But in this one, like, him actually ties so heavily into the themes and the plot because he he's problem solving. He's figuring out what works and what doesn't. Um, and it's, it's so brilliant to see something like this, like STEM, on screen and it's not forced it's not it's not like those disney movies where a little girl goes oh i want to be a scientist someday um this is this is really meaningful stuff um and there's two final things i want to say about this movie the score by uh, john powell is brilliant it's absolutely brilliant i would say it's one of the best scores in the last decade at least just this wonderful use of celtic instruments really like cool instrumentation with bagpipes and drums um and then of course the cinematography the digital cinematography by roger deakins well he he was brought in to help and it really shows because my gosh the flying scenes i mean after i eat your heart out because these flying scenes are so immersive you feel like you're falling into the screen and it's just such a wonderful experience to watch on so many levels. So that's my pick for family, how to train your dragon. Excellent. Thank you, William. Sarah, what is your pick for a film for the family? Well, I see your animated movie, William, and I raise you my animated movie, which is The Adventures of Tintin, directed by that little nice. known director, Steven Spielberg. Um, I was a massive Tintin fan growing up, read all of the books. I even have some in French, which I try to labor through. Um, and, uh, and and I'm also um, affectionately aware of the, uh, the old school from, I guess, 20, 25 years ago, um, the old 30-minute uh, Tintin episodes. But um, I absolutely loved the 2001 breakthrough uh, Adventures of Tintin movie um, on absolutely every level. And it's interesting, William, that you talk about the cinematography in How to Train Your Dragon, because um, I think that with The Adventures of Tintin, which I must hasten to add, is technically The Adventures of Tintin, The Secret of the Unicorn, uh, available on Netflix, ladies and germs. Um, Initially, I thought I was just going to be watching an animated movie, and I was just rather hoping that the motion capture that we all knew had been used to um, to 
translate Jamie Bell and Andy Serkis into these beloved Tintin and Captain Haddock characters, just really hoping that that was going to come off and it wasn't going to look too weird, not too animated, not too weird. Uh, and in fact, it's absolutely perfect. But notably, there is a particular scene that uses a tracking shot or a oneer because it's not really on a track, which I have rewatched so many times trying to figure out if there was a camera, how on earth would they do this? And I can't work it out. It's extraordinary. Um, and so that really blew me away to think, oh, even animated movies can have really tricky, difficult um, camera work in them. So The Adventures of Tintin, The Secret of the Unicorn, um, is enormously enjoyable. It is witty. Uh, Daniel Craig plays the the, the uh, principal villain. It's got everybody in it that you're, who is so beloved from the books if you were raised reading the books. But the beautiful thing about it is it's also a standalone film. So even if you've never read a Tintin book in your life or your children aren't yet uh, reading them, uh, and I say yet, hopefully, because I believe that every child ought to, um, then I still feel that this is absolutely a go-to family flick um, I believe it's rated G, um, so there is nothing in it that's going to be um, too uh, difficult for little viewers, and uh, that would absolutely be my top pick. And in having to think about this for the podcast, I immediately was like, oh, that's on Netflix, fantastic. Even though I own it on DVD, I find that I love to watch things off Netflix. For some reason, it's just that little bit easier than loading a DVD, isn't it? So I bloody well put it on my list, haven't I, in Netflix to make sure that I remember to watch it, which is a bit stupid because it's also on my shelf. But there we are. <laughs> I, I do hope Peter Jackson gets to make his Tintin sequel someday because, come on, you can do this. Mm. I agree. And I also back you up about watching things on Netflix. I think as well because it's high definition, it's going to be better quality than a DVD. Mm. Well, my film for the family is on Netflix uh, as well, and that is 2007's Hairspray. It's a musical, a musical extravaganza about segregation and then integration. That is a lot of fun. The sort of the 2000s, there was there was a, a little mini resurgence of the musical, but there was limited offerings, or what we got was pretty average. So we had Moulin Rouge in Chicago at the start of the decade. That really hit 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 their strides. Mm -hmm. You know, it really showed the the genre for what it could be again. And Chicago winning Best Picture in 2002 was a big coup. But then there was a lot of average movies. Rent was definitely a, a very <laughs> poor offering. Uh, and we weren't really getting any Disney animated musicals at that time either. So Hairspray was an absolute highlight. And I like I like like the category says one for the whole family. So. Jump on Netflix and either rewatch it again or get your kids watching. Hmm. Well, our next category is a classic to rewatch. Now, I guess both of these ele the elements of this category are up for question: whether it's a classic in the first place and whether it's worth rewatching, which is all part of the fun. So, I'm going to throw it to Sarah to see what uh, Sarah, what your pick is for a classic to rewatch. So. The way that I interpreted classic was to go way back in time and to choose a period piece. Um, and because this film uh, won a couple of Oscars as well, uh, I'm reasonably confident. And it's Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility. Now, I love Sense and Sensibility, and it is so rewatchable. It has 
Um, amazing performances from the Oscar-winning Emma Thompson, who did indeed win. Uh, she she wrote the adapted screenplay of this for the film and uh, and won the Oscar for that. And she stars as um, Eleanor Dashwood. Um, Kate Winslet is luminous as her younger sister Marianne. Uh, you've just got such a starry cast of characters. Hugh Grant's in it. Um, I mean, you name them, they're in it, basically. Alan Rickman, who incidentally is in another of my five films for today. Now, Sense and Sensibility, the reason I mentioned Ang Lee as the director is Ang Lee has always impressed me. He'll be glad to know, I'm sure. And anyway, um, Ang Lee's always impressed me for being um, a director who can pretty much turn his hand to any genre. And so people who loved Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, people who loved the gritty painful family drama, The Ice Storm, um, will be very surprised to know that he can also turn out something like Sense and Sensibility, which is relatively fluffy, except, of course, it's about love. And it's about love in the olden days where all a young woman had was the prospect of a good marriage and therefore everything hung on whether she married well or she married for love. And so Sense and Sensibility, lush costumes, a fantastic script, beautiful performances, um, I, I do admit, even though I've seen it several times, that in my head I will still conflate it sometimes with aspects of Emma or other Jane Austen fare. And so for me to rewatch Sense and Sensibility is almost like a rediscovery each time. So, I mean, you could almost say it's a family flick because it's so kosher. But I do concede a lot of uh, the youth of today might, might think it's a little dry or, or not to their taste. But that would be my um, that would be my vote for a classic to rewatch 1995's Oscar winning Sense and Sensibility. Love it. And it was almost one of my top five films as well, Sarah. I cannot remember what category I was going to put it in because I agree with you. It could go in many. Cool. Well, I might jump in with my classic film to rewatch and then I'll leave it to you, William, to wrap us up for this category. But my classic is on Netflix and it is a 1988 film by the illustrious Timothy Burton, and that is Beetlejuice. <laughs> 1980s Beetlejuice with Gina Davis, um, Alec uh, Baldwin, um, Winona Ryder, Catherine O'Hara. So Beetlejuice, it has got incredible um, production design and stop animation effects. I think it's where he really, he really staked a claim on his style. Like whilst he'd made Pee Wee's a big playhouse or the big adventure or whatever the film was that still felt very much like a peewee herman film and beetlejuice is the first time that i think tim Burton truly uh, he arrived he arrived on the scene and it's it's a whole lot of fun i purposely did not put it in the family film category because i think it is absolutely terrifying and uh it's got one of my favorite scenes in any film which is the scene with the family at the dinner table with friends sorry there's a family friends and um the the two ghosts possess them to sing uh Dale, Dale, which is a lot of fun so yeah classic to rewatch. gotta go see beetlejuice and it's on netflix so that is my film william finish this off for this category all right, so my film is also on Netflix, and for classic, I was thinking, uh, not so long ago, I guess it's relatively recent, but it is 2003's Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, uh, directed by the great Peter Weir. I know you guys know this, but I love this movie 
and it is it is such a great one to watch in these times because it's guys peter Weir makes movies about communities whether it's Deadpool Society or Truman Show or Gallipoli or uh, Witness. I mean, every single one of those movies are about a cluster of people who kind of, they're, they're in their own little sub-society and how this ticks. Master, Master and Commander, Far Side of the World, is this in spades. It's an adaptation of a number of novels, Napoleonic Wars and, and the Navy featuring Captain Jack Aubrey, in this case, played by Russell Crowe. His good friend, Dr. Stephen Maturin, played by Paul Bettany. Uh, and the movie is, I mean, it's its kind of a hangout movie. It's, yeah, there's the backdrop of the war, and they have a mission to kind of find this French privateer before you know he does some bad stuff, and they're on a mission from Queen Victoria. But with all of that stuff going on, uh, it is, it's actually not that... Uh, not that concerned with this, with, with all the, the big epic trappings. It's a really quiet story about the friendship between two men. Um, one who's very brusque and, you know, a little brutish, but intelligently so. And the other, uh, a man of science and and a doctor, you know, his, his job is to save people rather than kill them. And I think how it plays out is, is really beautiful. They play music together. They have banter that reminds me a lot of Star Trek how Kirk and Spock or Bones kind of bounce stuff around. Um, there's also a wonderful sequence, which just speaks to my heart, where the ship gets um, it gets marooned off the coast of the Galapagos Islands, and Dr. Matron gets to be all Charles Darwin and to discover all these species, and it actually ties into the military strategies. And so being being a biologist saves the day, and it's, it's awesome. Um, but... All that being said, just a wonderful, wonderful movie. It's 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 one of these these movies that you just you relax in front of it. It's over two hours long, and you kind of just let yourself into this nautical world of of high seas adventure and brotherhood, and you know fighting the French. So really, really good stuff. Um, and then of course, uh, just to finish off, because I also talked about the music for the, my last pick. The music in this movie is so good, and how they use Mozart. And how they use, uh, especially Boccherini for for the end credits. It it is wonderful, wonderful stuff. So that's my pick, Master and Commander: The Far Side of the World. I just want to chops in and say, in case listeners are thinking, oh, this science guy William, he only likes movies with science in them. No, that's not true. I can absolutely support you on Master and Commander for such a, a an essentially basic premise and so sort of few. Uh, significant characters. It is absolutely glorious and enthralling and captivating and all of those big four-syllable words. So um, I I, I, uh, endorse your view there, William. Brilliant. Oh, great films. Great films. So we move on now to a category which we've called Something New. Now we've articulated this as being a film or perhaps even a, a TV series that has come out in the past year. Uh, and we've we've done that because a lot of stuff is coming out on the streaming services, a lot. And so I know for myself, there's a lot of things that in my mind are quite new, but they've probably been out for a year already. So that's what this category is about. And I'm going to start us off mm. and I'm going to mention a Netflix, uh, it is a TV series, but it is a complete, a complete short series that I watched, I think in an entire evening or maybe over two evenings. And that is Russian Doll, which is the nice. uh, Amy Poehler produced all-female uh, creative team uh, story about a woman who is repeating 
a day, very Groundhog Day-esque in that she keeps dying and then waking up in her bathroom at a birthday party for herself with a lot of people in the apartment. And as the series progresses, it starts to pull back the layers about what's actually going on, much like opening a Russian doll, both with the world within which this character lives, but also what this means for her as a character. What are the layers that she herself has to sort of reveal and dig deep to find? It's got elements that remind me of a Terry Gilliam film. It's got elements that remind me of, remind me of a Stanley Kubrick film. Uh, and but ultimately it creates its own very unique world. And and like I said, it's very watchable in a short period of time. It's very binge-worthy, and it's something that I'm going to return back to and, and watch again because there are a lot of layers there, like the title suggests, and things that can be, I guess, turned and looked at in different directions. So I'm looking forward to jumping back in. So that's my pick, Russian Doll. And I'm actually going to go uh, hand it back to William, and then, William, you can hand it back, hand it to Sarah to finish us off in this category. Alrighty. Uh, yeah, want to back you up on Russian Doll. It's awesome. What a cool miniseries. Uh, so my recent pick is a really odd one because as the way things are going, uh, this might actually be one of the highest grossing movies of the year. Um, who, who would have thunk it that Sonic the Hedgehog would, you know, blow people's minds? It is... It is a movie, guys. It is a movie. Um, I, the, the one thing I want to say about Sonic, or actually, I want to say many things about Sonic, but the first thing I want to say about Sonic is that, so when we saw the trailer last year, we thought it, would, it was going to be disastrous. I showed it to my students, and we laughed, and we guffawed, and I mean, Sonic looked like some sort of CGI monstrosity designed to scare small children. It was it was really bad. And then the creative team decided to listen to the fans, which in retrospect might not be such great precedents. Uh, but they, they they redesigned Sonic, they pushed back the release date, and they released it on Valentine's Day, which is a perfect movie to bring your significant other to. Uh, well, maybe not. Maybe. I don't know. But I liked it. I, I liked it quite a bit. Um, I'm a lifelong Sonic fan, and I was really surprised at how much they really they really stuck to what makes Sonic tick. Like it feels it feels alive in a way that the games do. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a family CG character interacts with James Marsden kind of movie like he's done before. Um, and so there's there's those those scenes where he needs to learn about the importance. of family and this so that stuff's not so great but overall just the fun the movie brings was really really surprising and i think a lot of the fun falls squarely on the shoulders of the villain dr robotnik played by one jim carrey in his most 90s jim carrey performance ever i i guess since what liar liar he is going full the mask Ace Ventura, um, you know, he's stretching his face, he's doing his eyebrow thing, he's going, oh, no, 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 no. and it is glorious. Um, and to see him act as, well, it's funny, like Sonic, he's a cartoon, he's a snarky cartoon hedgehog voiced by Ben Schwartz. And he actually has to kind of play straight man to Jim Carrey because that's how cartoonish Jim Carrey is. Um, I would say overall this movie is a ton of fun, especially if you have kids. And I I really enjoyed myself. Again, as a Sonic fan, I expected to hate it. 
with every ounce of my being. And I ended up just, yeah, loving it. Well, maybe not loving it. That's a very strong word, but liking it quite a bit. So that is 2020 Sonic the Hedgehog, directed by Jeff Fowler. And you can find it streaming or uh, on demand at Amazon Prime Video. I'd like to uh, jump in on the back of what William just said and make another interesting point that James Marsden is also in Hairspray. So we have already created an intersecting set between two of the films discussed this evening. And regular listeners will appreciate that normally cinema in context draws connections between the films it discusses. And so true to form, we're continuing to do so. And I believe it's now my turn to talk about a new film. So also on Netflix. And guys, let me just say, this is going to be the newest film discussed because I think it's only come, um, come out on Netflix in the last week and a half, maybe two weeks. And it is a Spanish thriller called The Occupant. Now, um, The Occupant is a classic 90s psychological thriller in its way, but that is not to say that it is dated. It totally, totally works nowadays, but it definitely ticks all of the conventions of uh, a psychological thriller in the vein of The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Um, to me, it had elements of falling down, and let me explain why. This Spanish thriller is about um, a family man called Javier, uh, who lives in a very upmarket apartment with his wife and his sullen teenage son. He's fallen on hard times. He can't get he can't get work. He's middle aged and works in advertising. And the young people who run advertising agencies think that he's past it. So he can't get work. And in so doing, he and his wife and son have to relinquish their swanky apartment and move to the sticks or at least move to a down at heel suburb where they have uh, sort of a, a rental apartment. So it really is a climbing down the social ladder in terms of status. Now, Javier doesn't get work and that frees him up uh, to become a sociopath uh, to the extent that he basically starts to fixate on the family who, <laughs> it's true, the family who, who move into his old apartment. And so we get scenes of him sitting outside in the car watching them with their idyllic um, television advert-like life up on the balcony that he used to inhabit. And then things get super, super dark as Javier um, breaks into his old apartment, starts hanging out in their, in their space, and then starts to ingratiate himself into um, friendships, of course, unbeknownst to the family themselves. Um, and then things start to get very, very nasty indeed. So as I say, it has um, veins of uh, the hand that rocks the cradle, which you have, if you haven't seen because you were too young in the 90s, you should totally, and I intend to revisit it. Um, and it's a really terrific Spanish thriller. And definitely there are aspects of it narratively where you're like, really, that's a convenience but it, or a contrivance even, but it doesn't matter because it's so well done and it's so engaging. And look, in these dreadful times in which we live, why not just watch something that's much more dreadful? That's my motto. <laughs> okay, thank you, Sarah. Uh, well, I'm actually going to pass it straight back to you. But before I do, I thought I'd introduce the next category, which is something a bit off the wall. So something that might be a bit out of people's usual viewing boxes, or perhaps just something that doesn't really fit under any other categories. So Sarah, straight back at you. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, well, I didn't want to go with anything that was too nasty. Um, and um, there was, there's a lot of nasty stuff out there at the moment. Um, and some of it's entirely watchable and actually jolly good stuff. But I wanted to go with something that's um, off the wall, possibly underseen, uh, but in my view, one of the really 
terrifically entertaining films of 2015. This is available on Netflix and it's called Eye in the Sky. Um, and Eye in the Sky is basically a film about a military operation to track down terrorists in a tiny Kenyan village um, where drones and lots of technological stuff is used. Um, but what makes it fascinating is that it's uh, it takes you sort of behind the scenes of the, the playoffs between the various countries, in this case, uh, predominantly Britain and uh, America, where the commanders in chief or the military personnel are, are really dealing with a real time situation that keeps changing and morphing. Uh, and they've got to make decisions, split decisions based on the information they have to hand. And it's a really fascinating, thrilling film. Um, it stars the wonderful uh, Dame Helen Mirren as uh, as Colonel Catherine Powell. Um, it's also got Alan Rickman in it. And uh, those of you interested in the intersecting sets of cinema in context will remember him from such films as Sense and Sensibility. It also has um, Breaking Bad's Aaron Paul. Uh, if I remember rightly, it was one of the first films that I saw him in post Breaking Bad. And that was kind of thrilling or while Breaking Bad was on anyway. And that was kind of cool. And it also has um, Bakad Abdi. Now, Bakad Abdi is a uh, an Ethiopian. I beg my beg your pardon. I believe he might be Somalian actor who came to prominence and was nominated for an Oscar for his role in the Tom Hanks movie Captain Phillips. Um, and I believe the wonderful story back then is that he was a cab driver who happened to get picked for that movie. He played one of the pirates in Captain Phillips, got nominated for an Oscar and then has um, gone went on to do a bit more acting. Anyway, Eye in the Sky is utterly fascinating. And as I say, the fact that the director, Gavin Hood, who's a South African director, who's done quite a variety of things, including um, Sotsi, which was a, a very gritty um, civil war, I guess, um, for want of a better term, movie. Um, and he's done some average stuff as well. But Eye in the Sky is a terrific thriller. And I can't wait to watch it again. And now that I know it's on Netflix, I definitely will. Um, where I think the nice thing about it is that it puts the audience in the position of we need to make the decision at the same time. I don't mean like a choose your own adventure book, but I just mean as an engaged viewer, you're like, oh, well, I would just shoot the missile. And then you learn a bit more information and you think, oh, well, hang on a second. Maybe I wouldn't shoot the missile now because blah, blah, blah. So it's it's very effective at sort of engaging you rather than you just being a, a passive observer uh, of wartime atrocities, really. So there you go. Eye in the Sky, Netflix. Excellent. Thank you, Sarah. Well, my film uh, that is off the wall is a Netflix film as well. And it is also one that I was looking through the Netflix catalog and thought, oh, my gosh, this is on Netflix. And that is 2001's Mulholland Drive by David Lynch. And uh, yeah, I, I still say to this day, it is one of the most terrifying moments in cinema history that I have ever experienced. Uh, there is a moment in that film where a character has a dream. Well, that's all. They're all having dreams. But there's a moment in that film where um, yeah, a character describes a dream that he's had, and he talks about walking to the back of a building and there being this horrific um, kind of person back there. And that whole sequence is still, to this day, I still think about it and just shiver slightly. But no, wonderful film but, uh, with Naomi Watts. It was really her explosion onto the onto the cinema cinema scene. And uh, it, it is David Lynch at his best, in my opinion. It has enough of a cohesion for people to connect with 
but equally all of the off the wall, out there, uh, spooky elements that that make David Lynch so thrilling to watch. And it makes it a great film to rewatch because there's still bits of the puzzle to try and unpick every time. There's also a wonderful scene uh, in, a, in, a, in an old theatre with a woman singing uh, Silencio, or maybe it's in a, maybe the theatre's called Silencio, but she sings this song and it's this very spiritual moment with the two main characters that is another standout moment in cinema. So, yeah, if you haven't checked out Mulholland Drive, put the kids to bed, uh, maybe wait up till it's a bit darker, uh, so 10pm, and then put it on, and then you can look forward to not sleeping for the rest of the time in lockdown. So there you go. That's my film for Off the Wall. I'm now going to hand it over to William to hear his pick. All righty. So, Sarah, you said you were trying to avoid darkness. And, Jeremy, you had a pretty dark pick. But I'm going to try one up here on this one. Because, oh, boy, this movie. Uh, It can be found on Lightbox. But I guess before I introduce the movie, I I have a, a couple of questions to ask you both. Are you blind when you're born? Can you see in the dark? Can you look at a king? Would you sit on his throne? Can you say of your bite that it's worse than your bark? Are you the cock of the walk when you're walking alone? Because jellicles can and jellicles do. Jellicles can and jellicles do. Yes, my friends, it is Cats 2019. Uh, What a horrific disaster of a movie. I kind of don't know where to start with this i mean it is one of the cinematic catastrophes that will go on i i I mean this will be the new room uh i think there's there's so many so many decisions that were were just so wrong-headed into this adaptation of andrew Lloyd weber's wonderful you know 1970s musical cats uh and director tom hooper who you know has done some okay to good things like king's speech and in my opinion, some awful things like Les Miserables. I mean, he one-ups himself. Sorry, Sarah. I, I know you. I know you quite enjoy that movie, but he one-ups himself in every way possible. And just like with the room, it is the joy of watching cats is seeing how artistic decisions can be so single-handedly self-sabotaging. And the schadenfreude inherent in that is delicious. Just to put in, if you haven't seen the trailer and if you haven't seen the movie, just to illustrate how how horrifying this movie is, the main characters, who are cats, I mean, aptly named, the main characters in this movie are people wearing leotards which have fur digitally painted on top of them. So they're like human-proportioned cats with human faces and human hands, except they're really tiny. They're prancing around on these huge oversized sets. Um, they eat human cockroaches. They zip out of human skin suits. Uh, everything is dark and dreary and filmed on a lopsided angle. Idris Elba plays the baddie, and when he takes off his trench coat, you see his naked, quivering body covered with short short cat hair um, with a, a really, really strange lack of genitalia, like a mutated Ken doll. I, I mean, this movie has it all. So if you're into something that is legitimately quite unsettling, but also just a hilarious 
hilarious example of a bad movie driven by the best of intentions. Please watch Tom Hooper's Cats. Amazing, William. Amazing. I I had my phone. I had my microphone on mute, but I was laughing a lot through that. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, if if a, if a dear listener would like to jump into the, uh, I guess, the kitty litter, what, where would they watch this film? What streaming service? Uh, on Lightbox. So you can buy it. You can spend your hard-earned money <laughs> and, and watch Cats. Hey, well, that brings us to our final category of the podcast, which is our go-to happy film or a go-to happy film that is available on streaming services and i shall i jump in because i i think i guess i'll share my number one pick so this film is on night i was on lightbox sorry on lightbox it came out in 1997 and it is a film that my family watch every christmas and that is the castle an australian uh, classic that was filmed in 11 days they were going to film it i think in 14 days but they always wanted to make sure that they had good catering on their films because they thought, look, we might not make something great, but at least we'll feed the people and we'll have a great time making it. So let's have 11 days filming because we know that we can feed everybody adequately in 11 days rather than 14 days. So that was the logic by which they made this movie. And I think that joy and that love of being together is just completely, uh, it completely translates into the film. And as an audience member, whenever I watch that movie, I feel like I'm part of that family. For those people that haven't seen it, it is about an Australian family who live next to the airport, and they are in complete. They have complete contentment with their life. It is a very, um, very, well, what's the word I'd use? A very simple life, and they have very simple pleasures, and they celebrate their life uh, in the most wonderful of ways. They are very communal. They have they're very close with their neighbours, and the airport next door which also happens to be next to power lines, which I don't quite know how that works. But the airport next door uh, is looking to expand their buildings, their reach, and so they have claimed that they can buy the home off this family, whether they like it or not. And so really it's a, it's a David vs. Goliath story about this, this family fighting for their castle, which is this, by or well, objectively, I would say, a pretty average home uh, that has been adapted and changed in ways that, perhaps make it less than average so there you go my number one pick the castle do you know that film has been recommended to me since it came out and i still haven't seen it and i'm i feel like i have because i've heard about it so many times and i'm familiar with aspects of it but why i haven't actually seen it i don't know so i need to make an effort this lockdown to watch the castle i think you should and i think with your uh, your um, New Zealander husband, and that he is very much a part. He is very much from this country, but originally from the United States. I think it'd be really interesting to see how much pieces translate for him as well. Yeah, and I think totally. as well with your international connections here as well. Uh, you, you both of you, I think, are well placed to make a judgment as to whether or not this film is. You have to be a New Zealander to really get it. I would say no, because or or an Australian. Sorry, I yeah. would say no because it's pretty universal. But yeah, I'm keen to hear what your thoughts are. Cool. Sarah, do you want to jump in and tell us your go-to happy film? I would love to, simply because my go-to happy film is one of the greatest films ever made by accident. I don't say it was made by accident, but I think I fell into it by accident and realised by accident that it's magnificent. And it's 2018's Game Night. 
Yeah, yeah, man. Jason Bateman, Rachel McAdam in, oh my gosh, I remember watching it for the first time and thinking this married couple are so lovely and fun and brilliant together and they're not horrible to each other like in all of those Judd Apatow movies and they're, they're almost an aspirational couple. So don't ask me about character names, doesn't matter. Jason Bateman, Rachel McAdam, married, unable to have children or haven't had children yet. And every week or every weekend, they have a game night with their friends and neighbors who come on round um, and, um, well, play games as the name suggests. But then one day, Jason Bateman's intensely competitive, slightly higher status brother, played by Kyle Chandler or Kyle Chandler, turns up, uh, invites himself round for the game night, um, and then chaos ensues. And well, I guess, no, actually, technically speaking, Kyle Chandler says, come round to my house. So they go round to his house, which is a flash house, because of course it is, because he's a high status brother. Um, and while they're there, um, a couple of hoods break in, kidnap Kyle Chandler's character, take off with him, and the people sat round the coffee table and the cheese and wine are initially a bit like, whoa, he goes the extra mile for these games and don't realize initially that actually it's not a game. And so then a wonderful night of fun ensues that includes um, shootings uh, and criminals and car chases and uh, people being injured and possibly killed and a whole lot of drama. And it's hilarious as well thanks to performances by Billy Magnuson, who just seems to be typecast time and again as a, a good-looking oaf of a boyfriend. And uh, in this instance, the date that he brings to uh, game night is played by the wonderful Irish actress Sharon Horgan from um, Catastrophe. So um, game night is absolutely, it, well, I remember it just being so surprising and so fun. And it is definitely for me one of those films that gets better each time that I watch it. Um, and it is unconditionally a go-to happy film, highly recommendable, absolutely not right for young children because there'd be a bunch of stuff in it that's completely inappropriate. So let's not um, make that mistake and pop it into the wrong category, but um, super fun, so many um, uh, re-mentionable uh, scenes and moments uh, and and at the core of it, Rachel McAdam and Jason Bateman just being absolutely themselves and absolutely adorable. So there you go. Excellent, Sarah. And I guess just to kind of throw it back at you or at least return the same thing you said to me, it's a film that I haven't seen that everybody who knows me and knows films has said, you've got to watch this film, Jeremy. <laughs> it's it's about games. And, and of course, I'm a big, big board game fan. And I think it's worth mentioning as well that all of your films are on our podcast today, Sarah, are, on, are found on Netflix, which is the same with Game Night. Cool. Well, William, do you want to bring us on home and let us know your go-to happy film? Yeah, will do. Uh, just want to back you up on that, Sarah. Game Night is awesome. I, I love that movie. It's so much fun, as you said. Uh, plus, Jesse Plemons is amazing in that movie. Um, so my go-to happy film, I actually had a couple, but they weren't on any streaming service in New Zealand. So I actually went with a TV show for one. Um, so this is found on Amazon Prime Video, and it's one of the great NBC comedies. It's Community. Um, I mean, this ran 2009 to 2014. It's a show uh, from Dan Harmon. And it is a show about a, a bunch of misfits who kind of 
meet each other at a study group run at the local community college and go on all sorts of crazy adventures together. Um, there's, there's just so much talent on, on screen with community that since the show ended, I mean, you see them all over the place. Dan Harmon, you know, he's, he's gone on to do Rick and Morty and gone on to Superstardom. Chris McKenna, one of the main writers, he went to write the new Jumanji movie that we were all in love with. Um, Megan Gantz, who became one of the showrunners or head writers on Always Sun in Philadelphia. Uh, Don Glover, you know, he went from a just a stand-up guy to community to being Childish Gambino and Atlanta. Uh, Alison Brie, Jim Rash winning Oscars. And of course, the Russo brothers got their start from Arrested Development and Community. And you might know them from a little known duo of films called Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame, aka the highest grossing films of all time. And it's just wonderful to see these creative types really blossom. But really at the root of it, Community, it's... It's a show about media and about how we view the world through the lens of pop culture and narrative. Um, there's so many episodes that are themed. So if you go in fresh and you don't know what the show is about, I mean, each episode, it might be a take on a mafia movie. But instead of drugs and money, they're trying to... Uh, run chicken fingers because everyone wants chicken fingers or it might be an episode that's a sci-fi movie or it might be an episode that's a war movie except it's a paintball competition in the community college and they play with genre with conventions with tropes and they very much there's a meta commentary on the, the stuff and just the love of genre and the love of movies and comedy via movies and TV is palpable and brought to life by these amazing comedic presences and these amazing comedic writers. So that is community. I, I will say um, it lasts six seasons and the fourth season uh, was the one where Dan Harmon was fired. And so the fourth season is pretty terrible. If you want to watch it, just don't watch the fourth season. But seasons one, two, three, five, and most of six are comedy gold. Community. So, wh William, can I ask you, because this is another one of those I've heard about it forever and never actually watched any of it. Um, A, is it not dated? Therefore, I could start it now and I wouldn't think, oh, this is very, you know, whatever, 2012 or whatever it was. And also, are they standalone episodes? Is that what you're saying? Ah, so it's it's interesting. I, I would compare it to stuff like, I mean, I, I hate Big Bang Theory, and I, I think Big Bang Theory is dated, whereas Community, a lot of the references are to stuff in the 80s and 90s or early 2000s. And so, no, I, I would say the comedy still holds up, especially now re-watching it. And the episodes, almost every single one of them are standalone. There are some two-parters. But overall, it's not it's not a, you know, oh, let's watch a 10 episode arc. It's it's very much a sitcom in the broader sense of the word. That, oh, that's cool. Well, you've sold me. Thank you for that. Ah, and cool. I feel I feel as well how fitting how fitting to finish our chat uh, about a show that is literally about community. And, you know, whilst I'm sure it skewers some of those ideas, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's nice to remind remind our listeners that we are in this together even if we are physically physically distant we can still be socially connected so 
that's nice. That's a nice way to wrap us up today. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cinema in Context. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please share it with your film-loving friends. You can listen to Cinema in Context on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Radio Public. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode or give us future films to discuss and compare at a later date. Maybe even give us another idea for what we can do if we're still in lockdown in a month's time. But I guess, until then, ka kite anō.